At this point, I think Renee's going to take our children for Children's Church downstairs. Um, so they're going to be dismissed at this point in time. <clears throat> and we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible and you want to be there in your own Bible, it's John chapter 13 is where we've been working through and we're going to continue in this morning. So let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we ask the same prayer that we said before from, from Psalms. Give us understanding, Father. Help us by your Spirit who lives in every one of us as a believer. May he give us understanding to your word. Enlighten us to see who you are, who Jesus is. And then convict our hearts of sin that we're made aware of. Helping us to repent of it, to turn away from it, to put it to death. And to put on Christ that we might live lives that imitate Him, that display Him, whether we're alone or whether we're in a crowd of people, may it be our aim that we would have our lives look like Christ. May you receive our heart's worship. May you receive all the glory in our time together. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Has anyone as a parent ever been nervous about leaving your children with someone else for a period of time? It may be for the weekend, it may be just leaving them for a couple of hours, but you basically have prepared for every worst possible outcome that might come in your absence. And what do you do right when you're about to leave the house? You give all sorts of instructions, don't you? First to the person who is watching your children, right? Here's the phone numbers. Here's the location of any food or drinks you might need for the children. Here's the schedule of the kids' bedtimes and on and on and on. And then you give final words of instruction to the children, right? Have fun. Be good. Treat your siblings nicely. Listen to the person who's watching you. Needless to say, it makes sense to us, to pass on directions or guidelines when we're about to leave, right? And we, as we saw at the end of the last passage we saw in John chapter 13, Jesus is in his final night with his disciples. Judas has now left the room to begin his betrayal that will lead to Jesus' death on the cross. So now that it's just Jesus and his genuine followers in the room together, he begins to give some final instructions, some final teaching to them. He makes known to them the glory that he is about to receive, and then he presents them with what he calls a new, but it's really not so new, commandment of how he wants them to live since now he is departing from them. And at the end of this passage, we see Peter used as a warning for us, just in case we're tempted to think that we're so good, we're so 
we become so prideful and so arrogant that we think we're exempted from this command that Jesus gives. So let's go ahead and look at our passage this morning. John chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 31. When he, being Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. So say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now as we begin this passage, we see Jesus begin to make the transition, right? The transition from what we saw two weeks ago of the betrayal that Judas is doing to now the glory that Jesus is about to receive, right? Look at verse 31, right? Now, now that Judas is gone, the time is here. Now it's right upon him that he will be glorified. And this is not new information, is it? Jesus, in one sense, already made this known, Look at, just flip back to John chapter 12, verse 23. Now Jesus, this was before Jesus' final night. He's with the Greeks at the feast. And what's he say to them? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Right. So Jesus already made known publicly that his hour of glory is upon him. But now he's making it known specifically to his disciples. And it's not just the time for glory, but it's how this glory is going to be displayed. Remember when we studied that from chapter 12, his glory is displayed by what? His death. But now specifically as we look within his disciples, it's his love in going to the cross. Right? Look at what we already saw in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father. And then what? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right? So everything Jesus is doing from his instructions all the way to his death on the cross is all an act of love. So we see here your kind of first point there in your outline. The time for God's glorious love. He is making it known to his disciples, the time is near, the time for his glory has arrived, his death is approaching, and all of it is an act of love. But let's note a couple things here that we see Jesus talking about this glory that's coming. He describes it here in verse 31, right? Now that is the Son of Man glorified, but what else does he say? And God is glorified in him. 
right? So now we begin to have this tension that we constantly have had through the Gospel of John, and really a lot of us have in our entire Christian lives, right? The Trinity, right? How is it that Jesus as the Son is being glorified, God is being glorified in him, it's this Father, Son, but they're both God sort of thing that's going on here. But the point is clear of what Jesus, based especially on everything we've seen in the Gospel of John, of the father-son relationship, right? What Jesus is really trying to say here. The father, referred here as God, is glorified in Jesus being glorified. Jesus, as the son, is displaying who the father is, particularly at what hour is coming, the hour of his own death which then follows with his resurrection and his exaltation as he ascends into heaven. And we see this stated again in the next part of verse 32, right? If God is glorified in him, in Jesus, God will also glorify him, Jesus, in himself, God the Father. You catch all those pieces, all these glory pieces moving around here, right? Jesus is glorified. God the Father is glorified in him. If God is glorified in Jesus... God will also glorify Jesus in the Father himself. Basically, right, they're, all, they're both sharing in the glory here. For Jesus to be glorified is for the Father to be glorified. Jesus is revealing who the Father is. But what does it mean? What does it mean for the Son and the Father to be glorified in what is about to happen? To be glorified means something is going to happen that gives the people watching a greater awareness of how worthy God is of all our worship. You catch that definition of what what it means to be glorified. is the people who are watching what is about to happen, that as Jesus is glorified, for him to be glorified, for God to be glorified, means those seeing this happen are brought to a greater awareness of how much worship God is really deserving of. And as we grow in our awareness of that, we then give that worship. Right? It's not enough to just be aware of it, but our hearts must respond with actually giving him the glory. So what we see here is that what's about to happen, Jesus' own death is going to enlighten his disciples or the people watching as to how much praise Jesus is really deserving of. And because Jesus, the Son, reveals the Father, to see the worship Jesus is worthy of is to see the worship that God is worthy of. And all of this is going to happen when, according to verse 32... He will glorify him at once. And it relates perfectly to what Jesus said right before in verse 31, right? He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. It's right on top of him. What's about to happen? What is about to happen that's going to make the disciples, make us as those who hear this story thousands of years later, grow in our awareness of seeing how much worship Jesus as the Son and the Father are worthy of. His death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, or you might call it his ascension. 
That's exactly what's about to happen. That's what the now is. The hour has come for these things. Now, what do we see in these parts, though? What do we see in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that makes us more aware of the worship that God is due? There's just a few things that I want to name off for us. First, we see God's power on display at this hour. Jesus, as God in the flesh, takes on sin. Something we could never do. We never had the power to take on our own sin. But yet, Jesus defeats sin, the devil, and has victory over death in his resurrection three days later. So we see God's power on display. We also see God's justice and holiness displayed at this hour. God's not just going to pass over sin and act like it never happened, but being holy, he demanded that sin receives justice, that he must pour out his wrath upon someone, and he does so on his own son. Jesus receives the just penalty. It isn't just glanced over. We also see God's faithfulness. So we have God's power, we have God's justice and holiness, we have God's faithfulness. He made a promise to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, what? That he would crush the head of the serpent. And here the hour has now come where this is going to come to fruition. For all those years, thousands of years, God has been faithful to work out his plan that he would fulfill exactly what he promised as soon as sin entered into the world. And last, we see kind of the theme of everything this morning, God's love. That while we were still sinners, helpless to save ourselves, God sent his own son to pay for our sin so that those who believe in Jesus can share in his resurrection and also have eternal life. So please tell me, do any of those realities that we see in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, does that stir your hearts to worship in any way? To see God's power to see his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness, his love displayed towards you as Jesus goes to the cross. Does that give you any greater clarity as you look up and see how much worship God is really worthy of? But as I said before, Jesus is certainly giving us insight into the worship that we should have in light of what's about to happen. He's also using this language, this arrival of the hour, the arrival of his glory, to reveal to his disciples that their dynamics of life are about to change. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, of course, Jesus later reveals, right, just 
in the next paragraph, part of our passage to Peter, right? You will follow later. It's not that you're never going to see me again. It's not that you're never going to follow. But the point is clear, right? His disciples are going to live the rest of their lives in this world. Once Jesus ascends, right? The rest of their lives in this world with no physical present Jesus to follow. And they can't follow him. They can't go with him. How would you respond to that? You've been raised in this culture of waiting for the Messiah. He finally arrives and he calls you to follow him for three years. And you've done nothing but give your entire life to follow him. And now he says, I'm leaving and you can't go with me. How discouraging would that feel? Who wouldn't be asking the questions of, well, now what do I do with my life? Right? It's like telling your kid you're going to go get ice cream and then saying, but you can't come along. Can you imagine a child's response to such a thing? Now think of that to a much greater degree, right? Of following Jesus, the Messiah, for three years. And then being told, nope, you're not coming with me though. But Jesus doesn't want them to focus here on where he's going. He wants them to focus on what he's about to instruct them to do now that he's not going to be physically present. That question of, now what do we do? He answers. See it in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He switches. He transitions from discussing what's about to happen to him to now commanding his disciples on how to live without him, right? Not that he won't be present, right? We know he makes that pretty clear in the Great Commission, right? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is present, just not physically. And what's he tell them here? As he moves from what he's about to experience to what their lives are now going to look like, what's he say? I have a new commandment for you. Love one another. In fact, this very commandment is going to be the theme throughout the rest of his night with his disciples. We'll see it show up again in chapters 14, 15, and 16. It's this theme throughout his whole discussion with them. So it's clear why Jesus would begin with this. But we ask the question, he says this is a new commandment, but it's not really new, is it? Right? I mean, we can go all the way back to Leviticus and see where it says, love your neighbor. Or in fact, we could just go earlier in Jesus' ministry, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So why is Jesus saying this is new? I think, while this commandment itself may not be new, the way Jesus tells his disciples to go about obeying the commandment is new. So let's break down a couple things as we look at this new commandment to us. First, let's, ask, let's go ahead and ask three questions in the midst of it. First, who? Who are we commanded to love? Well, it says it three times in these two verses here at the end of this paragraph, right? We are to love one another. And who is Jesus talking to here? 
his disciples, right? So while many people may look at this and say, you're to love everybody, right? Jesus does say elsewhere, right, to love your enemies. Jesus is narrowing that focus in here. That doesn't negate the other ones. It doesn't mean you aren't to love your enemies, but he's talking specifically here to those who belong to him, those who are followers of him. And he's saying those who belong to Jesus should love others who belong to Jesus. Again, this doesn't push away the call to love our enemies, but it puts a certain emphasis on the love that we are to have for other believers in Jesus. In fact, we see elsewhere in John, to fail to love other believers is actually a failure to love Jesus himself. Look at how it's later described when John writes one of his letters in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4 Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brother, right, term throughout all the New Testament letters for a brother in Christ, right? Someone part of God's family, someone else who has believed in Jesus So what's Jesus say here? To claim that you love God, but to not display love to your fellow Christians makes you a liar. You're lying if you say you love God, but you're not loving one another. So all those people, and I'm not saying anybody in here, I'm just saying all those people who think, I can love God, I can worship God, I can follow Jesus, all the while I'm sitting at home, watching church on a screen or neglecting church altogether. Keep this verse in mind. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. You can't love the head of the church, but hate the body of Christ. How you treat other disciples of Jesus unveils how much you really care about Jesus. Let's transition now, though, from the question who. We see who we're supposed to love to now how. And I think this is the emphasis on why this is a new commandment. Right? Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And then just... As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I think that's what makes it new. Just as Christ has loved his disciples, just as Christ has loved us, that's how we're to love one another. I think this is new because where did that exist in the Old Testament? Where did Christ's display of his love for his disciples show up in the Old Testament? There was no physically present Christ in the Old Testament. I think that's what makes this new. There was no sacrifice by the Son of God to save us from our own sin and our own inability to love. No new life in Christ to empower us to love. So I think as we read this part, just as I have loved you. I think there's two things to remember of how we are to love, how we are to love. First, we can only love one another 
when we are rooted first in Christ's love. We can only love one another when we ourselves are first rooted in Christ's love. You will be unable to love another believer in Jesus rightly unless you first are abiding, finding your source of love in Christ's love for you. Actually, just jump ahead real quick. We'll we'll get into this later on, but look at chapter 15, verse 5 in John. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? And if you remember from when you were a child and you memorized the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, right? What's one of the fruits? Love. So if you cannot produce fruit apart from Christ, from abiding in Christ, what's that tell us about our love for one another? Another. We're unable to do it unless we first are abiding, rooted, finding the source in Christ's love for us. Your only chance to love other disciples of Jesus rightly is to first have Christ in you, empowering you to love like he does. He abides in you and you abide in him. Just take, for example, to use some of this language from chapter 15. If you look over here at the courthouse and all those trees that are in front of it, right? How desperate are those branches of those trees to remain connected to the trunk? It's everything. Any thought of being cut off means life ceases to exist. How desperate, how eager are you as a branch to remain connected to the source, which is Jesus? Your only chance to produce fruit, to produce the life that you're called to live is you must be abiding, connected, rooted in him. So that's first. The second thing to love as Jesus has loved, I think, is sacrifice. To love like Jesus means to sacrifice like Jesus. Love requires death. Maybe not physical death in all situations, but death to something. Death to your own personal desires, to your own agenda, your own time, your own interests, whatever it may be. To love means to sacrifice. It may even mean death. Right? Look, what, what does Peter do in verse 37? He makes a claim of his love for the Lord by telling him what? I will lay down my life for you. Thomas said something similar all the way back in chapter 11 when Jesus started to head to Jerusalem. What's he say? Let us go with him that we may also die with him. Or look what Jesus says also in chapter 15. Verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. But then the next verse, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The greatest display of love is what? To lay down your actual life. Love requires death. When you are rooted first in Christ's love, you are then empowered to put to death that which is 
selfish of you. That which you think is most important. You put those things to death in order that you might love those who are around you. Anybody ever seen Finding Nemo? I like using kids' movies because it's all we get to watch at home anymore. Let me use Marlon as an example. Marlon's the dad clownfish here, if you're not familiar. What's Marlon obsessed with at the beginning of the movie? Safety, right? Everything has to have its proper place, and his child cannot, his child's attached to his hip. He's not going anywhere without me. Constantly watching over every move his kid makes, expecting, like we said at the very beginning, right, the worst possible outcome. Yet Nemo then gets taken off, right? Taken away by a diver. And what's the entire movie about? Marlin putting to death his desire for safety in order that he might love his son. He faces sharks, jellyfish, being eaten by a whale, carried in a seagull's mouth, all for what? To find his son. Even though every bit of that journey meant he was going against every fiber of his being. My friends, is that what our love looks like? That what we selfishly love most, we're willing to put to death in order that we might love other believers. If it came to loving, serving your wife, husband, family, if it came to choosing to love them or watching that sport or that TV show, would you put that entertainment to death? If it came to loving your spouse, whether it be by helping with a chore, whether it be eating a meal together at the table, or even just having time to sit down and talk to each other, what would you be willing to give up for that? Would you give up your television? Would you give up the hobby that you love to do for the night? Would you give it up for the week? Would you give it up for the year? Would you give up your time of getting to go out and hang out with your friends? Would you give up the extra long work hours that your, that your job is requiring of you so that you would love Your spouse, love requires death. Or let's broaden this out to what this passage is really talking about. It's not talking about marriage. It's talking about our love for each other as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. What would you die to in order to love your brothers and sisters? Would you die to the idea of sleeping in so that you could be here more often on Sunday mornings so you could show love? Would you die to your right to have your free time during the week? Give that up so that you could meet with someone that you knew was struggling within our church body? Or, on the reverse side, would you die to your ego and your pride by sharing with someone within the body how you're struggling so that they can love you? In order to love one another, we must first be rooted in Christ's love that then empowers us to sacrificially love each other like Jesus did. And that brings us to the final question, right? Who, how, why? 
What's the purpose of loving one another? What's it going to do for the disciples? Now that Jesus is leaving them, why is this the command? I think we see the answer in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Our love for one another will reveal who we belong to. By this love, all people, all those watching you will recognize who you belong to. Because the world around us is really blind to what love really is, aren't they? They think it's this giddy feeling you get towards someone that eventually runs out. Or they think it's, well, I just have to work hard by my own efforts to provide for my family and give them their basic needs. That's what it means to love. But our love in Christ is so much different than that. First, we're empowered by Christ, not by our own efforts. But then, second, our love is radically more sacrificial than the world's ideas of love. We don't just love another person because we ought to. Right? It's not just out of obligation, it's because we want to. Because the sins that prevent us from loving that person have now been put to death by what Jesus did on the cross in his love for us. So the sins that prevented us from loving each other, the sins that kept us focused on ourselves have now been put to death, so now we can actually find joy in loving one another. It's not just, oh, I know I'm obligated to, it's I want to love other believers in Jesus. In fact, look at how it's described, again, chapter 15, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Right? Love is one of the fruit. We already saw that. But do you see what happens? First part of that verse. What happens when we love one another? The Father is glorified. Remember at the beginning of our passage what happens in Jesus' death? The Son of Man is going to be glorified and the Father, God, is glorified in Him. And remember what we said about that. By those watching Jesus die, show His love for us, they begin to have their eyes become more aware of how much worship Jesus and God are worthy of, right? That's what it means that he's going to be glorified. But now what happens? As Jesus' disciples love one another, those on the outside looking in, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit working in them, have their eyes opened up to see how much worship Jesus and the Father are worthy of. The Father is glorified by us loving one another. That's what verse 8 of chapter 15 tells us. So while we can sit around all day and think of missional strategies of how we can reach the people in our community, Jesus just gave us one. The greatest missional strategy we have, or one of the greatest missional strategies we have of reaching the community around us who don't believe in Jesus is that we show ourselves to belong to Jesus by how we love one another. As we produce that fruit of loving each other, the Father is glorified. People have their eyes opened up to see how much worship God and Jesus are worthy of. 
Now, before you get too excited and think of yourself, I'm already doing all of this. I'm doing pretty well with all of this. We're giving an example here at the end of someone who thinks that about themselves. So at the end, I want to urge you to beware of self-deception. You can quickly hear Jesus' command to love one another and say, Amen, and move on with your life just as you were living before. Peter tries to sidestep this command. Much like many of us in here might be tempted to do when we walk out these doors this morning. So I want to give you three warnings real quick of self-deception. Three warnings of self-deception. First, those self-deceived prefer knowledge over action. Jesus just told them, love one another as I have loved you. He gave them an action to do, right? Seen by the act of his death. Now he wants them to die to themselves to love one another. And what does Peter say in verse 36? Lord, where are you going? Peter says, forget the action, forget the commandment to love one another, I want the information. Where are you headed? Let me sidestep what I'm supposed to be doing so that I might might gain knowledge rather than have to live out this action. And it's really easy for us to do the same thing, isn't it? It's easy for us to know stuff about God without actually imitating God in life. We can know all the verses that talk about God is love and how God tells us we should love, but we neglect to actually love. We say amen to the concept of dying to self, but we never then walk out our doors or even within these walls put to death our selfish motives that are holding us back from loving one another. I recently heard a pastor state it this way, and I think, I think it's a good way of putting it. If you learn all the right theology but it doesn't change the way you live. You're not saved. If you learn all the right theology, but it never affects the way that you live, you're not saved. May we love, not just in word and talk, not just in the knowledge that we have, but may we love in deed and in truth. May we not just be hearers of the word, may we not just be knowers of the word, but may we be doers of the word. Second, Those self-deceived trust their plans over God's. Look at Peter's words in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. What's Peter's plan? Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm even going to die with you. He's upset, Jesus said. You don't get to come along, right? Jesus just revealed what the real plan is. You don't get to come. Peter says, I'm coming. This is my plan, and I'm going to do it. Peter's plans are being thwarted by God because God doesn't plan to save humanity, doesn't plan to save us from our sins by the death of Peter, but by the death of Jesus. And we can do the exact same thing. We can sit here and say this morning, how do I think I should love others? And I'm telling you, that's the wrong question. The question is, how does God tell you to love others? Not how do I think I should. How does God tell you to love one another? What this really happens to be is a lack of faith. A trust in self rather than a trust in God. Peter, think of this. Peter said, though he didn't state it verbally, in his mind, in his heart, what's he saying here? It's better for me to go and die 
than it would be for me to have to stay here and try to love my fellow disciples. Peter would rather die with Jesus than have to actually love his brothers. And God said otherwise. So what is it? What is it that you have your plan set on so much that you need to turn away from and turn to what God says your plans need to be? Last, those self-deceived make claims of devotion that prove faulty. We saw what Peter says in verse 37, right? I will die. I will lay down my life for you. There's a claim of devotion, but what's revealed to be true in verse 38, right? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter thinks awfully too high of himself. By the time the morning comes, Peter acts more like Judas than he does a follower of Jesus. Thomas, who said he also would die with Jesus, is nowhere to be found the night he's arrested. In fact, none of the disciples are there at the trial, are they? This doesn't mean they're not true disciples, but it does mean that our love, our claims of devotion, are never perfect. In fact, what does Jesus ask Peter later on three times after he's resurrected? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? So let me ask you, where in your life are you most tempted or currently in the practice of betraying Jesus, committing treason towards Jesus, where you make claims of, he has my entire life, but really, if we were to expose your entire life, you prove yourself to be faulty in your devotion. What do you need to turn away from, repent from, what it is that you're putting before Jesus, where you need to die to yourself, what it is that you need to die to in order that you may love your fellow disciples. I invite you to come to Jesus. Root yourself in his love. Abide in him and commit yourself to daily dying to yourself that you might love him and love one another. So my friends, as the world outside is watching us who claim to be devoted to Jesus, who do we belong to? Who are we displaying ourselves to belong to? Do all people look at us and say, that's the loving, sacrificial Jesus who gave down his life to save us from our sins? Or do they look at our church and say, Jesus looks awfully stiff. Jesus looks kind of selfish. Jesus looks pretty proud. Jesus looks like he can't be bothered with our problems. As you meditate and remember Christ's love for you this morning, Remember that Christ did take on your problems. Took on the worst of your problems. So as we meditate on that and remember that, may we find ourselves abiding in his love. And as we root ourselves in that, finding ourselves empowered to then love one another, which then proves ourselves of who we belong to, that we belong to him, that we are his disciples, that we are abiding in him, rooted in him.
empowered by Him. So as you look at your life this morning, here in the midst of a bunch of believers, or as you walk out those doors into a world full of unbelievers, who do you belong to? Not mentally, but by the way you act in your life, by the way you love your other believers, who are you saying you belong to? Let's pray. Father, as we as we approach going into another week of unknowns, we don't know who we're going to cross paths with. We don't know what might come to us in life this week. May we have two commitments. To love you and to love one another. May we find our hearts overwhelmed with thankfulness as we think of Christ's love for us. May we have our hearts grow in worship towards him as we think about the cross. And as we abide in him, may we find ourselves empowered to put to death that which is selfish in us so that we might not only love you, but love each other. Father, may we recognize that the way we treat one another in this church body is a display to the world of who we belong to. May we not forget that as we come together this morning and as we leave this place this morning. Help us by your grace, by your spirit, to love one another. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As they come up for the last song, are we still singing the normal last song? Okay, I'll make sure that it was